0: The early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. And I think right now is kind of the second cheese part. Now we have a company have adopted Kubernetes at the scale. Now we know how to run it at the scale and et cetera. Like it's developers and the more developers we have, the more ingenious ways they figure out how to squeeze the most functionality out of the system.
1: You are listening to the Kublist Podcast, a show interviewing project maintainers for CNCF sandbox incubating and graduated projects. We'll discuss each project to understand where it came from and discuss the roadmap and plans to continue the project. Hi, I'm Mark Campbell. I publish the Kubelist weekly newsletter dedicated to Kubernetes and the CNCF ecosystem. I'm the founder and CTO at Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like Puppet, Harness, HashiCorp, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software. Check us out at Replicated.com. The Kublist podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. Finally, sign up for the Kublist weekly newsletter and read previous issues at Kublist.com. Hey, I'm here today with Rick Spencer, VP of Platform at Influx Data. This episode is going to be a little bit different from others because Influx is not a CNCF project. I wanted to talk to Rick about how Influx uses Kubernetes and other CNCF projects from an end-user perspective. Welcome, Rick. Uh, Thank you, Mark. I'm super happy to be here. Awesome. So before we start diving into the tech, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background, how you got into uh, infrastructure technology.
0: So actually, I see myself more as a developer tools Person, and I'm always at my best when my end users are developers. Currently, I would say that running infrastructure for developers is kind of a necessary evil if you want to offer the development platform for them, which is exactly what we're doing with InfluxDB these days.
1: Yeah. Um, It it is. I think, you know, the platform's getting more and more complex. And so you can't just like, you know, open up your laptop, write code, ship it to production anymore. You have to start to understand a little bit more about that infrastructure in order to be a developer.
0: Yeah. Well, our case, a lot more so that our users don't have to understand that. Uh, Would you be interested in just hearing about like some of the steps in my journey that ended me up here?
1: That would be great for folks to hear.
0: Okay. So I started out working at Microsoft on usability for their developer tools in 1998. And and I got that job because I got a master's degree in cognitive psychology in an area called human factors engineering. So very focused on human performance. And uh, the thing is, when I was a kid, like all you could do with computers was program them. So like when the whole, you know, 8-bit revolution started, we all learned how to program. So I was a programmer since I was, you know, a tyke, probably 12 years old when I you know, start programming. So I, that was one of my, my foci when I was in graduate school, like the psychology of programming. And that led to an opportunity working at Microsoft in their developer tools division, studying and designing developer tools. And this is back in the .NET era. From there, I ended up with a very deep interest in open source and working on open source projects. And then I ended up somehow landing my dream job. I uh, spent quite some time working at Canonical, uh, leading the Ubuntu project, which was, you know, just a very interesting space to be in in terms of people using open source and infrastructure. Like that's kind of when um, the uh, Elastic Cloud Services started to take off at Amazon, and using Ubuntu server there was very interesting to people. Um, I mostly stayed on the client side really focused on the user experience and the developer experience of Ubuntu. From there, I ended up with a stint at Bitnami where I really got to pursue much more of my interest in cloud computing and providing open source software in a really easy to consume way for, for end users. I was especially interested in like the developer tools and the databases and such. And then after that, I ended up joining InfluxDB to help them run their new cloud product, the multi-tenant cloud service where, you know, we stay like extremely focused on the developer experience and and operating it so that people can build their time series applications really easily on top of us.
1: Cool. That is actually like a super interesting journey. I'm curious, a couple of questions for you there. Like when you left Microsoft and went to Canonical, Microsoft, you know, historically has had a hate and then love, like embrace and welcome relationship with Linux over time. Like Mm -hmm. when you left, where was Microsoft in their view of of Linux at that point?
0: Oh, yeah, they hated it. They hated it. Like (laughs) just for an interesting story, I won't name check anyone, but uh, I started using first Fedora and then Ubuntu at home, which meant I couldn't use the Outlook client, so I had to use Outlook Web Access, hmm. which meant all my emails from home were in pure text format. And then finally, somebody realized that was because I'm using Outlook Web Access because I'm using Linux at home. And so, like somebody in my management chain actually dropped by my office and they like sent me an email that I shouldn't be using that quote crap unquote or however <laughs> they put it. So they were still pretty hostile. To it at that point. I I find the irony that I left Microsoft to work on open source just like hilarious now because, of course, um, you know, I consider them actually reasonably good open source
1: citizens these days. Yeah, Microsoft is a very good open source citizen, I think, these days. And then at, at Canonical, it's like the Linux on the desktop, right? Like Linux is the developer experience. We're, we're waiting for that to become like the standard. You know, we see it a lot more these days, but I think still you have you know, Mac OS and, and Windows taking over most of the development experience.
0: Yeah, I, I agreed. I mean, a lot of the developers on my team still use different flavors of Linux and really like it. I use a Mac desktop personally, but I use Linux very heavily in my development. Just, I just spin up containers all the time, so I'm just constantly running Docker. And The first thing I do when I have any development project is I just start a Docker file and, and pull some version of Debian that to get started. So I I do think, uh, you know, Linux stays extremely central even to the desktop development experience, even for people like me who are not like running it natively. Only reason I don't run it natively is because I just like my microphone and camera and other software to just work without configuration, which, you know, some people care about more than others. And that's very subjective also.
1: Right. So let's let's move into like Influx. You know, you're you're using Kubernetes a lot in the day to day operation of the Influx platform. Like, I'd love to hear at what level are you using Kubernetes and how invasive is it into the production infrastructure?
0: Oh, it's everything in our production infrastructure. It's like you know, it's all we think about <laughs> by the time we come to work and we leave at night. I think it might be useful to give you a bit of an overview of like what I'm working on, so it might contextualize a little bit about why we're using it. Great. So for people who don't know, like not everyone knows InfluxDB, surprisingly, but it's like kind of the first and I would say the best time series database. And these are databases that treat the dimension of time as the primary dimension of your data, especially that you query from and that you index on, et cetera. You know, we are a database at our heart and there is an open source version of it. We're on version 2.0 now. The open source version is like a single binary. It's super simple to drop on your desktop or drop on your server and use. But I run the uh, cloud version. Between the open source version and the cloud version, we try really hard to keep the APIs very similar. And we also try to, you know, design things so that they work well together. So you can use, you know, an open source binary on the edge, have it interact with your cloud account in ways that are are useful to you. But like ultimately what's ended up happening is you sort of over time evolved from being like a time series database to being really a time series development platform. And there's some tools and other like parts of our product suite that that go with that. So first, um, A lot of people use this product called Telegraph. It's like totally open source. A lot of people actually use it in Kubernetes to collect custom metrics there. And there's an operator for that in a Helm chart. But people use it in like all different scenarios. And there's a bunch of different input plugins, transformation plugins, and output plugins, which means it's like designed to be really easy to collect data from different sources and send it to different sources. Of course, the primary source is InfluxDB, but, you know, Microsoft uses it. Other people use it also to output to their platforms. Then we have a suite of client libraries. So pretty much every language that you would want to use is wrapped up in a pretty easy to use library. Naturally, there's a whole CLI experience and a UI experience that goes with it. One of the things that we offer, which developers really take a lot of advantage of, is our task system. So you can basically register a query, and the query can do all kinds of work, and tell the query to run itself periodically. And so this saves you as the developer from having to set up your own server, keep it running. You also don't have to pull for information, like you can set up tasks that will push to your infrastructure, to your program. So that just saves developers like a huge amount of effort. And along with that, we have something called the Flux. Flux is a language which is, I mean, we we call it mostly a data transformation language. Like it does do queries if you just want to select out data, but you can do some really hardcore math transformations. But you can also push data to other sources and pull data from other sources. So you can really do like really advanced data transformations and interact with other infrastructure, right? So you can like get a bunch of data, transform it, and then actually HTTP post it to like some other external system if you want. And like we handle all that for you. So as a developer, you don't have to set up infrastructure for all that kind of integration and regular work like downsampling and that kind of thing.
1: That's, that's cool. That actually sounds actually like super useful. Like the, the infrastructure just to set up something as simple as a, like a, a high availability distributed cron. Oh. It, sounds, it sounds like you know that's, that's covered, but that's like kind of one of the bullet points of the features that you, that you just described.
0: Yeah, I mean, it like comes out as a bullet point, and that's how we want it to feel for end users. but the complexity involved in making that simple. For end users, for our developer customers or users, is uh, significant, you know, because means thousands of users are running arbitrary queries at whatever you know period of time that that they want, and you know when the guardrails between them break down, it can cause a lot of chaos, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, really specifically, we don't want customers to have to set up that kind of infrastructure because like we know how hard it is. And so that's like one of the primary values that we try to provide.
1: Right. And I think we're going to talk quite a bit about like that, like the value of, you know, that developer experience, like time to live and not having to, you know, wrestle with like a large, you know, 90 page instruction manual on how to set something up. We call it time to awesome. (laughs) Time to awesome. I like (laughs) it.
0: Yeah. (laughs) That's our
1: guiding principle. Key metric there. yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, That's a great overview of like the the platform Influx Telegraph and and everything. Um, Influx Cloud, that's a essentially that's a managed version then of Influx. Exactly. And you're running that all on Kubernetes today. Hundred percent Kubernetes.
0: That's a multi-tenant SaaS service. So when you sign up for an account there, you know you get the economy of scales that you're running with other uh, other users. One thing to note about this is there's this phrase like data has gravity. And what we found is that a lot of our customers, you know, if you're handling hundreds of gigabytes, terabytes of data for them, they don't particularly want to copy that data outside of what region they're in, much less to another cloud service provider. So for most people that I talk to when I'm asking them like how they're solving problems with Kubernetes, they have like just a different problem set because like let's say you're using an HR application that's built on Kubernetes. Do you really care where your hundreds of kilobytes of data is going? Right, <laughs> Like you don't, but if you, if you're talking, you know, multiple terabytes of data, like you care. And so for this reason, we have an approach that we call like multi-cloud multi-region. So we operate multiple production clusters on what we call the big three cloud providers and we do CD to that, you know, multiple times a day during the work week. So besides just having a large scale of users, we have a large scale of users over a large number of production clusters. I haven't run into that many people who are actually like using Kubernetes at this, at that kind of scale, or at least at scale, like described in that way.
1: Yeah. Like, I'm curious how much of that scale you can describe a little bit more. So all the big three cloud providers, you're running those. Um, you have multiple clusters in multiple regions. Like, are you able to like give us a ballpark of like the number of nodes that you have total running across all of those?
0: Well, I don't have that at my fingertips, but I think like our smallest cluster has like thirty nodes, and our largest has about a hundred. I'm just recalling this from the top of my head, but it's like in that in that ballpark. And like you know, we have like I think like our largest cluster right now is running like a thousand. No, I don't even know how many pods we're running. <laughs> so.
1: And the application is is truly multi-tenant then. Like if I sign up as an Influx Cloud customer, you're not spinning up a separate cluster for me. I'm sharing a cluster. Exactly.
0: So if like you sign up for an account, then you get an org ID and you get a token to start with. And then you can use that token to create other tokens to write data. And then when you write that data, that data gets written into the same database as other users' data. Of course, we have, uh, you know, all kinds of safeguards in place, so you can't, like, see other users' data. But it's really designed to be fairly compressed so that you would get the benefit of the economy of scale.
1: And then, you know, I don't have to worry about where those hundreds of, you know, gigabytes or terabytes of data live because you're, you're worrying about that.
0: Yeah, exactly. And you don't have to care about anything. To you, it should just be... An API,
1: right? So the data then, like I, I actually going back, these Kubernetes clusters. Are you using managed Kubernetes underneath the hood, like EKS and GKE, or are you deploying Kubernetes like uh, like the hard way or re- using your own installer?
0: Well, I would say yes to the first two. Unfortunately, like so, um, we are finding that it's actually a significant challenge to operate Kubernetes itself, like modulo running the application on top of it, just in a multi-cloud way. So some of our clusters in AWS, we started with, once they say rolling their own, I think, I think the SRA team used something like COPS or something, but it was not their managed service. On Google and Azure, we're using their managed service. And then I think on the latest cluster that we rolled out in Amazon, we're also using their managed service. And so we have a lot of Terraform, as you can imagine.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question, is how you're actually managing that at scale. You're clearly not using like you know web consoles to create and manage those clusters. <laughs> no, no, no,
0: no, no. I mean, I'm sure the SRE team does at times. Uh, we found over time like that the, the problem of operating Kubernetes actually breaks down into two separate domains that, that are unfortunately extremely related. And the first domain is operating Kubernetes itself. And if you're only running like a single cluster, then you know obviously you're in a single region and single cloud provider. That complexity would be like you know dramatically reduced compared to to what we're facing, because you don't have to try to keep a certain level of consistency between the different environments. But that skill set of understanding like these are the cloud service provider VMs, these are the services, the Kubernetes service that they're providing on top and then we're operating kubernetes itself on top of it that's like one deep deep skill set yeah and then that then offers a kubernetes api which then is mostly consistent and so then we have another skill set which is like application developers service developers who know how to use the kubernetes api itself of course, there are many times where these concerns meet in the middle, but we actually have that now separated in between two distinct teams that, you know, work
1: closely together. Yeah, so you have the, the platform team who's responsible for making sure that Kubernetes is available, running, predictable, reliable, the, the platform itself exists, and then the development teams are able to count on that and then, like, count on, the, like, a consistent predictable API that's sitting there.
0: You're right, but we, we use slightly different and confusingly overlapping words for that. So it's our, our SRE team that provides the Kubernetes okay. service to us. And then I run the platform team, and we are all developers that offer the InfluxDB API and operate the database and everything to everybody. But yeah, it's exactly what you said. But you know, as you can imagine, we have to work really closely together because it's very, very easy to use the Kubernetes API in what appears to be a completely valid way to solve a problem, which does not work in practice on Kubernetes, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, no, that totally does. I'm sure there's some uh, war stories or like, you know, like battle scars, I guess, if you will, um, from like lessons learned uh, that, that might be interesting to share if there, if any come to mind.
0: Sure, I mean, there's, there's bullets dodged like that recently come to mind, I guess. Um, so just, just to give you a little background, like we're totally a GitHub shop, and we put all of our application configuration, including like, what services do we want in production, what are the replicate sets, how, how many pods do we want, how much memory do we want them to have, Like all that kind of configuration is actually done by the platform team, the application development team. And, you know, there was a case where we were like, well, we'll have much higher availability if we provide a thousand of these pods. So let's just stand up a thousand of those. And then like the SRE team I was like, you understand that if you do that and you get in a crash loop, that you will exhaust all the IP addresses available in Kubernetes. Also, SD won't be able to keep up. With the changes that are happening, and you're gonna have a total outage. And there's like nothing in the Kubernetes API or or anything like that to keep us from making like that kind of mistake. Fortunately, that one was headed off at the pass, <laughs> if to so to speak. But I think that's like a good example of the kind of thing that the API allows you to do. Like I mentioned before, that you know, chest of foot guns that Kubernetes gives you that, I don't know, like, like since we're using, like we're doing a lot of uh, projects in Rust right now and like the developers hate it. Well, when they first start using it because it's like just so hard to learn and to compile and et cetera. But once they wrote their program, there's these whole classes of bugs, which they simply will not encounter. You know, they're not going to crash because they're referencing you know, dereferenced memory, they're not going to have, uh, you know, concurrency bugs and etc. But I don't, I don't think like Kubernetes is like that at all. <laughs> I feel like Kubernetes is more like, you know, during the early 90s when I was programming on the Mac and you could like access any area of memory.
1: Right, right. I mean, it's like a super, you know, <laughs> I think we've, we often forget, you know, you're counting on it, you're relying on it at scale to run like a business. But it is still like an early project and it's like, mm-hmm. it's still the velocity of the project is is crazy. And like, I'm actually curious, like how, how frequently is the team updating Kubernetes? How up to date do you keep it with the current release cycle?
0: Well, we rely on the cloud service providers to keep it up to date. Got it. Which means that we're often running, you know, multiple versions for, for periods of time. So, I mean, it's interesting. We actually did try to engage a bit with the Kubernetes community, with the CNCF community about like how to practice Kubernetes, like how do you do it, right? How are people doing it? And like, there's probably things that people can learn from us and God knows there's things we can learn from other people. And so uh, multiple people on my team actually, like I said, like take time, book it out of your schedule and start joining some of the CNCF meetings start meeting people. Of course the one and only George Castro was like instrumental in helping us connect with different groups and stuff. But the, uh, my team members stopped going to those because they said they just talk about like how to run the meetings mm-hmm. and how to induct things into the CNCF. They didn't really feel like that they were getting the opportunity in that venue to talk to people who are actually like interested in, helping each other operate. So we've had to look elsewhere, I guess, for for guidance on it. I, I would also say, you know, we have a problem that a lot of, uh, you know, our colleagues don't, which is that we're offering a developer platform, right? So like if you're offering something where the end user can click a bunch of buttons and then hit submit, it's actually pretty constrained what those users will do. But we have, you know, thousands of developers building on our platform and they will use the API and use the flux language to solve whatever problem that they're having. And so it's easy like we just are amazed at the ingenuity of some of their, our users and how they solve their problems. Unfortunately for us, I mean, sometimes they go places that we didn't anticipate people would go. Yeah. And then they do it like 10,000 times a minute <laughs> by running it in a Python loop you know <laughs> we're always interested in finding more peers who are like facing those kinds of challenges and etc but um, we, we've been very lucky to have some really good hires um, on both the SRE team and, and what we call our deployments team we actually have a lot of experience with kubernetes as much as you can have so you know well this is their second or third time through building up this you know
1: kind of service yeah. tons of experience yeah I've done it before twice yeah <laughs> yeah that's 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 interesting um actually like let's let's go into that for a second kubernetes is popular everybody's looking you know i think most companies are have either adopted kubernetes or actually that's probably the the, the minority most companies are working to adopt kubernetes like mm-hmm. i think you're like this model that they they you know explaining this whole infrastructure a lot of folks will probably be like that's where we want to get to and you know, even you mentioned the story of the, you know, the, the foot gun that you avoided with, you know, at CD and in, in some kind of challenges with crash loop backoffs. And you relied a lot on the the knowledge and the skill of that SRE team to kind of caution against that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we kind of are a lot of times right now. So my question is really like, how did you build that team and how do you continue to like recruit and hire people with that skill set that can operate at that level with this like crazy fast moving ecosystem?
0: Right. So like, obviously as a VP of engineering for the platform team, I uh, spend a lot of time with recruiting. One of the things, you know, when people ask me like, wow, like how, how did you build this team? How how did you build it so fast? The first thing I ask them is like, how many hours a day do you spend recruiting? And if it's less than like a couple hours, like you're just not spending enough time on it. And then what does recruiting look like in this, world like it's not a matter of putting up a sexy job posting and people coming to you like you can get lucky that way but what we usually do when we have a need is the first thing we do is we look at like what projects are out there often in the cncf or not that are like interesting in this space and then let's go to the github repo and let's look at all the people who are contributing to it and we start combing through that and then start looking at, like, okay, who are interesting people there, and then start reaching out to them. And we've had really, you know, pretty good luck in different domains, being able to find people who are like, yes, I would like to work full time on this area of interest, you know, and pull people in that way. But we've also had a lot of luck. I'm sure you've heard the phrase A's higher A's, B's higher C's. Right. I mean, Paul the founder, like he just started with a really good team. And then that just sort of built on itself, right? Like just really smart people hang out with other really smart people. And, you know, and so we pulled in like whole networks of people, you know, like one person comes over and then six months later, their five top people are also working with us.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, I think you have a a great, compelling story there too. And an offering of saying, you know, like if I'm an SRE and I want literally to be on the cutting edge, but like actually have, you know, not a toy project, but like a legitimately like, like big project to work on that people depend on to run their businesses. Like, like, I mean, it sounds like a, a great team and it's always fun too, to be on a team of people who are just really, really good and smart too. And you learn a lot from them and, you know, it helps you just like learn more every day agreed like oh
0: man I think mean, I feel like I've learned more at this job than like my last few years. I was just like actually starting to wonder, well, I'm in my 50s now, maybe it's time to you know transition away but like you know I found just being in this environment I feel like more energized and just enjoying myself at work like more than or at least as much as like any other time in my my life before which I also think touches on the recruiting, you know, like Influx does have a a culture, which, you know, I didn't create as part of the reason I decided to work here. But we have, you know, just a very strong culture, you know, Evan, the CEO, I think really helps set, I think Paul, the founder also, you know, is instrumental in it, but we just have a really strong culture around execution, but also, you know, we're a very human culture and and we, value humility and we really value people's i'll say work-life balance but i just feel like that's like such a jargony term but like everybody says that but like we really do practice that and i think that's really helped with our recruiting too because after people have been here a few months and realize that it's not just marketing that you do learn a lot that it is exciting as you said it's like so exciting it's one thing it's exciting to have users but then to like Look back two months later, and you have twice as many users, and yeah, it's really exciting, you know right. and then at the end of all that, the company takes care of you and you know, in a really human way. I think that makes my job of team building significantly easier, even though I still do put a lot of hours into it.
1: <laughs> right, so, sure. of course yeah, yeah I mean to, to build that team, it takes a, yeah. a lot of work before COVID was influx a remote engineering team distributed?
0: It was, yeah so uh, You know, Paul, the founder, lives in Brooklyn. I live outside Washington, D.C., you know, other leaders in engineering. Like, we were all all over North America and Europe. Uh, So that was, like, the engineering team, I'm going to say, was totally remote. It's a little bit of a fib just because there was an office in San Francisco before COVID. And some of the engineers had an affinity for working together in the office. But that was you know, more their, their option. I actually have a penchant for hiring people with a lot of experience in working remotely or managing remotely. And I've been doing it since like 2008 or 2009 or something like that. So it's actually a really good environment to work in remotely just because it's first nature to us. It's, it's our default. It's not our, you know, we, we didn't settle for a remote workforce.
1: Right. And I think a lot of companies, you know, engineering teams, too, were, were co-located in an office at the beginning of COVID and obviously forced to be remote and distributed. And we'll see what happens, whether like how many of them end up getting back in an office and how many stay remote. But having that that discipline, the culture, the practice of like, you know, like communication as a remote and distributed team is super different than it is when you just go to a room and draw something on a whiteboard. Um, so having that kind of built into how you operate just gives you like such an advantage all the time and especially during COVID when everybody else is struggling to figure out how to do that.
0: Yeah. I got a kick out of all the people's like tips and tricks at the beginning of COVID. And it's like these uh I mean, look, what do I know? But I do think it's, you know, gonna be interesting. Like a couple things. First of all, I think when everyone's working remotely, they can actually work a bit harder because no one's burned out from a commute or having to sneak away to run an errand, you know, you can really integrate your personal life and your work life in like a more fundamental way, just like much easier. I also think, you know, when you're working with people and they're working from home, you really get to know them a little better because they, you know, you, you see past their office persona. So I think the relationships potentially arguably get a little deeper or at least different. And then the, the other thing I would say is like, when I do go to an office, I'm just often just, I'm shocked by how much time people waste in offices, you know, just like they're in the kitchen. Supposedly that's where they're coming up with the greatest ideas, but like, I don't think so, you know? So yeah. it's my completely biased point of view that just like a remote workforce is a competitive advantage, at least in the tech industry, at least for people who are writing software. And so that's going to just slowly over time erode things. But I don't know like what Google, Microsoft, like all these companies that have billions of dollars in capital tied up in these massive campuses. <laughs> I don't see how they're gonna like pivot away from that.
1: Totally. So. But I think to your point, so we, we run we have a fully remote engineering team or company also. And you know, you're right that like people can focus more and like they're not like their their time isn't spent on that commute. But it's not like, oh wow, we as a company can take more of your time. No, actually that like Work-life integration, when when somebody who's used to working in an office realizes that, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, it's one o'clock. I'm going to go take two hours and go take my kid to the park for a little bit and play and then come back and work a little bit more, like be able to like set their own schedule and not have this predefined set of time that they have to work and adjust their whole life around. It's it just gives you the ability to work when you you have the creative energy to work and like Mm -hmm. spend time with the family when they're available and you want to spend time with them.
0: yeah. So, like, while we're talking about this, I have this theory that I call the two kinds of crazy. Like, most people, like when they start working remotely, they adapt to it just fine, just like you said. They're like, "Why, why haven't I been doing this forever?"
1: Right.
0: One of the two kinds of crazy, and the um, less common of the two, so there are some people who just they just cannot start working. Like, there's something about being at home and not having the transition. Like, I don't know, distractions like something about the way that they're wired, that they have a really hard time getting started and like sticking to something and they just give up on remote working. Most of the time when someone does go crazy, it's the second kind of crazy where they cannot stop working. You know, they just stay plugged in all the time. And, you know, they're always looking at Slack. They're having dinner. The Slack's open because there's other people working. They want to know what they're doing find that second kind of crazy a little easier to treat, you know, as a manager, but, right. but you need managers who have, um, you know, the online social intelligence to really understand that people are, are locked into that and, and help coach them out of it.
1: Yeah. I mean, you obviously, you want to get in there and help as soon as you can to keep them from, you know, burning out. And, you know, like, I mean, it's just, it's not, it's not a healthy culture at all. If everybody feels the need to be online in in Slack every minute that they're awake,
0: yeah, I think like that's a really good point because you said like feels the need, and I think it's that which is like really toxic. Like who am I to tell someone they should be working less if they enjoy working and it's how they want to differentiate themselves. You know, but if they don't want to be working but feel compelled to for whatever reason, that's like a really bad situation. So, yeah. I'm right. Really in agreement with you on, on that, but that's why you hire good engineering managers who Know how to keep their eye on
1: that kind of thing. Exactly, like, that's what they're good at, and yeah. they're they're able to like really help in 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 coach and engineer to like make sure they have that balance. Let's let's dive back into the the technology for a minute here. Like all in on Kubernetes, Kubernetes is running the platform, but Influx has been around longer than Kubernetes. Yeah. So I'm guessing, were you part of that transition, or did you join Influx after they moved to Kubernetes?
0: So, I joined Influx. My first week was the week before we launched the multi tenant cloud service. Wow. So, it was like, you know, real trial by fire. So, just real quick, like, how did we end up here, right? Right. So, it started out Paul and some other person, I forget their name, they had a, a startup called Airplane. And I don't know what it is. This is just like the company legend, so I'm probably gonna get it all wrong. But this is the legend inside the company. They started this uh, this project called Airplane, which was gonna help you keep track of your server metrics. I'm like, wow, it's actually kind of hard to keep track of your server metrics. We need a database for this, but there's no good database that we can store this time-based data in these time series. So they created. This uh, database called InfluxDB to support this other company that they were starting, and they gave it a license and you know, threw the code up on GitHub or whatever. And you know, in the way of things, that is actually what ended up getting traction was InfluxDB itself. But it was, you know, it was before Kubernetes. It was a relatively traditional you know, server. Like you'd install the binary or a few, you know, you'd install the UI separately, a few services around it, et cetera. And then people who really wanted to run it at scale would then work with the company to get an enterprise license. Uh, I'm skipping over one of our products just to make it, but you get an enterprise license and then we would help you operate uh, a cluster of these databases in your infrastructure. But Paul was, you know, not too long after that. Like when I was getting traction, he was like, I don't know. Like, this is a good business. It is a good business. Like, we're not, you know, we're not allergic to that business. But it's like, you know, I think this multi-tenant SaaS is really could add a zero or two to this, you know, the adoption. So they started to work on what we call internally we call two You know, so we still have the open source version. We have an open source version of two which is like relatively compatible as I mentioned with with the the cloud version. And then they chose, oh man, this must have been three years ago, but they chose Kubernetes because they knew data has gravity and we're going to need to be in multiple places. So that was like the best cloud abstraction layer even then, you know, and that's really what we use it for is a cloud abstraction layer. You know, so we can run pretty much the same service everywhere. And for you as an end user, it's completely seamless if you use use us on on different clouds. So then I picked up that project, you know, as the leader of that that cloud project right sort of as it launched. And so then I saw through you know the initial round of you know availability. And that was interesting because what developers consider availability versus the Kubernetes ecosystem seems to be very different, right? Like if like a developer overnight runs a hundred thousand queries, they'll let us know in the morning if they got one five hundred error.
1: Right, right. You know, like they like,
0: you know, they're really sensitive to uh, to those errors, but Kubernetes loves to just like pass out five hundred, especially when you're deploying, and people say, well, you just retry. That's what 503 means. But, you know, we actually can't do that because a lot of what people are doing with database has side effects. Like, do you really want me to retry your delete? You know, <laughs> like, so we put a lot of effort into, you know, those super smooth upgrades. And uh, we still have, like, you know, a long way to go. For the end user perspective, that's very smooth. But we need to, like, really improve our experience as we, you know, upgrading two or three times a day as we, you know, roll out changes. So we went through that, and then we had a period where we were really focused on, like, what are the developers trying to do and what are they trying to build, you know? And going through, uh, turned out a lot of non-functional requirements. Like, there was a lot of areas where they were a lot more sensitive to performance than we expected, and so we had to, like, really optimize performance, and some of that was at the code level. Some of that was at the configuration level. But then there are also some features that like we you know it seemed like they needed. like we got really close to a few customers, like spent a lot of time with them. And that really paid off because now we're at this stage where we're really uh, scaling quickly in terms of adoption. And so that's really really the focus that we're having right now is to keep up with the, with the rate of increased usage that we're seeing. But, like I said, it's not just the form that you can click on and hit submit. Like, it's developers. And the more developers we have, the more ingenious ways they figure out how to, you know, squeeze the most functionality out of the system. And so that can often result in surprising surprising work on our end to, you know, accommodate that.
1: Yeah, I think, you know... Building a developer tool, one of the things that 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 we've said before is that, you know, we like to think of it as like cooking for chefs, right? Like (laughs) like they have a very high standard and high expectations. They know they could write code. But that said, they understand the challenges you're going through and they're empathetic. They just they they want it to work properly. And like you know, one five oh three out of five hundred thousand requests, they might be like, Yeah, but like why not zero?
0: Yeah. But you did bring up a good point. I do find like our like our community and our user base are they're just like compared to working on Ubuntu or or compared to working on Microsoft, they're all just the nicest, easiest to engage with group of people. So like, I'm just taking the approach of just being like, totally transparent.
1: You know, someone's like, what happened? You know, like,
0: you know, just telling them. And like you said, they're developers and they understand. But like, I don't know what it is about Influx that attracted such a uh, positive and engaged community. But uh, that's been really nice if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's a sign that you have something that that, that people love. I mean, like if, you know, as a developer you're going to try a lot of different tools like every day, every week, every month and, you know, the ones that just aren't cutting it for you, like you're, you're probably not going to like take the time to give that feedback to them. But when there's one that's like, it's working and you just want it to continue to get better and better and better or transform a little bit, you have some requests, like you're going to engage with that community like really, really regularly. So it's probably a sign that people just really love the product.
0: Yeah, I hope that you're right. I, b- I believe that you're right, but I'm a kind of biased, right? Like just like <laughs> the um, enthusiasm, which many of our customers have for the product it seems really heartfelt. And also, there's a lot of companies like they've really um, like they they are building their company on top of us as their backend, right? So like, IoT companies, some of them offering like IoT applications, but some of them actually offering their own IoT platforms, like using us as their backend, right? You know, they're really dependent on us, like doing a good job. And as they scale, you know, we need to scale. And one thing that's interesting is there's been a, companies that are creating their own like server-monitoring solutions. And, and you know sometimes it's more of a traditional workload for us, where it's just like a really big company with you know, thousands of servers. They need their own bespoke monitoring. But what we're seeing a lot now is new companies that are building monitoring solutions for their own end users on top of us. So people send them their metrics, they send us their metrics, and they have a whole, like, user experience and alerting and, you know, visualizations and everything that they build on top of them and use us as the back end. Same with, uh, like, finance applications. And for some reason, a lot of, like, cryptocurrency trading applications and stuff, like, built on top of us. So I take my job very seriously because I feel a lot of responsibility to the people who have done that
1: yeah, people are counting on you, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to pay off for them, you know.
1: Right. So, you know, you, you tell a story there about how you adopted Kubernetes. I'm curious, you know, the CNCF ecosystem is more than Kubernetes. Yeah, obviously, Kubernetes is sitting there as a graduated project, and it's, I don't know, let, let's call it the center of the, of the ecosystem. But there's lots of other things. You, you mentioned that you use GitOps. Yeah. I'm curious, like, what other projects to use? Do you use service meshes? Do you use CNCF monitoring tools to monitor all that? Like what GitOps toolset are you using if you can share that?
0: For sure. i happy to talk about that. So we use Argo very heavily and we use json So we describe our application in a base json library. If you aren't familiar with json it's a superset of JSON, which is basically made for templating. Uh, So we describe the base application that way. And then for the different cloud service providers, and in some cases for the different regions, we'll have layers of JSON on top of that, right? So the base layer may say, uh, you know, give me um, 10 of these pods. But then on top of that, we may say, well, for this region, give me 20 instead, right? Maybe that's a bad example. But that's the kind of like configuration difference that you can represent in JSON Right then somebody can change the JSON it itself, which is in a repo, or you can change some code. And if you change some code, that code will get rebuilt. Our CI system will build a new container, which will have a new hash, which will then update the JSON it to say, these pods should now be pointed to this container instead of the old one. And then Argo takes it from there, and we use a phased approach right now, So it'll go through, I think they might call it waves. We'll go through a set of waves of deployment. So, yeah, like I said, we're not a Kubernetes tooling company. So the last thing I need is to be managing bespoke Kubernetes tooling, or God forbid, have like other users depending on our our, our tooling, right? So we prefer very much to, to go upstream, use, you know, we don't even mind paying for it, but if it's open source, so much the better. And we'll contribute everything back. We don't want to maintain forks. Great. We use Istio very heavily, but I personally have a very love hate relationship with Istio. It adds a lot of complexity, it creates a lot of metrics. You know, we get a lot of value out of it, but when there are problems, like Istio just cognitively just creates this sort of extra layer of complexity that we have to reason through. This was maybe a year ago, so maybe it's all better. But like a year ago, we were having this problem where this um one kind of pod stands up. I think it was like a gateway pod. And that pod then needs to like ingest a request and send it to another kind of pod. Like I think it was a query pod, right? I think that's what it was, but it doesn't doesn't really matter. But then what would happen is we would do a deployment if the called pods rolled, right, let's say, you know, we updated the query pods or whatever was being called by the gateway pods, if they got updated, then the gateway would not get an update about the IP address. And then users would start getting errors. Gateway can't find the service that you're trying to provide. And so you're like, why isn't it updating the IP address? And so, like, we ended up starting with, like, the golang dns library and just like super carefully just having to go with a fine tooth comb and of course at the end of the day it turned out there's some configuration in istio where it cached the ip addresses in a surprising way to to us or whatever super frustrating on the other hand we're really looking to the future we want to sort of migrate away from the idea that we have like cluster here, cluster here, cluster here, and more like, can we provide the service that you need in the right place, right? So maybe it's better for you to have storage close to you, but the compute is better to happen somewhere else, right? Instead of in the same cluster, we call that federation. And can we start federating these services across clouds and across regions within clouds, right? And so instead of having it be like this cluster, this cluster, this cluster, a federation of services, well, Istio, we think, is going to give us the opportunity to put those all in the same networking space, you know? So it would be, like, tractable for a programmer to write code that can actually access services in different places, right, without the code being, like, completely insane. sync. So that's, you know, I could go on, but, you know, we use Istio a lot and that's my love-hate relationship with it. Oh, it's also really good just for diagnostics. Like we look at the Istio logs a lot to we'll
1: figure out how something went. That's cool. What about, um like, I mean that's a lot of clusters, a lot of nodes, and you know, you, you, you have to manage SLOs, SLIs and everything. How are you doing that? And like are you using proprietary or like Prometheus for monitoring? How how are you thinking about that problem?
0: Uh, well so we use both. We're actually really interested in this company called Noble Nine, because they've like templatized this and solved this problem once and for all for everybody. But we're at that problematic space where we already solved the problem for ourselves and like at what point do you like you know, cut over. But, you know, we are already super good at collecting and analyzing metrics and alerting on it. So we run telegraph sidecars in all of our pods, which collect application metrics, right? So like when we read code, we just pump out metrics and data about that code. The telegraph sidecars pick that up and then send it to what we call tools or internal production, where we can basically monitor everything and, we just have tons of metrics that we can query on and tons of, uh, just tons of data and different, different information that we can query on and, you know, piece together different understandings of what's happening. We run other code, though, that we didn't write and those tend to use Prometheus. So we also have a lot of Prometheus metrics that we get. So, but we put the Prometheus metrics straight into InfluxDB and we, we don't use Prometheus itself, we just use the, the metrics.
1: Yeah, so that totally makes sense. You're like, you know, obviously gonna use your own product to collect that data whenever yeah. whenever possible. We're super good at it, so
0: yeah, why wouldn't we?
1: Yeah. yeah. It does exactly what you want, and you have a team of expert developers who can make it do what you need it to do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Although I don't know, I'm not a huge fan. Maybe it's because of my job with the Prometheus metrics. Like I get why they like are so into histograms and everything, but a lot of the times when I'm dealing with problems, like a specific customer has a specific complaint. So I say, well, all I know is 99% of our queries are fast enough. That doesn't satisfy them very well. They're like, well, mine wasn't. You know what I mean? So, you know, and then, you yeah. know, Prometheus is quite open. You know, you could go to your logs when that happens. But I spend less time with the Prometheus metrics and the other metrics we collect.
1: I mean, it's probably a whole different conversation. But, like, with that type of a problem... 99% of queries are fast enough, but mine wasn't. Like, it probably presents a really unique challenge when you try to define what an SLO looks like when every query just has to be fast. Right. Yeah,
0: yeah. And also, like, the SLOs per user, right? So, like, it's whether 99% of their queries are fast is, like, you know, at least that's the way they're going to interpret it.
1: Yeah, that's what's important to me. If I'm an Influx user, I don't care how many queries overall for Influx were fast. I want to know how many of mine were. <laughs> exactly, <laughs>
0: exactly. Yeah, so, you know, we um, we track that quite carefully. And uh, we're always optimizing our queries, and et cetera. So we we keep really close uh, attention on our our performance metrics for that reason. Make sure that they're always going in the right direction.
1: So another question, when I think about, like, running Influx Cloud, I'm putting my data into a, a managed SaaS service that you're running. And recently there's been this, you know, massive wave of supply chain style attacks starting, you know, the the most famous one that we know of is the SolarWinds one, the Orion breach, but there's been more and more. And then like there's ransomware attacks where somebody gets into your infrastructure and encrypts your data and demands, you know, cryptocurrency or, or millions of dollars to give you the keys to decrypt it. So if I'm putting all my data into Influx Cloud, one question that I'd probably ask is, you know, like what tools and what process are you using to manage that to mitigate that risk for me?
0: Well, so thinking about ransomware specifically for data that you have in our multi-tenant SaaS service, well, first of all, like all the data that we have that we keep, it, it's all encrypted like by the cloud service provider. So, we're just very careful to make sure that, you know, if somebody can get your data, it's just going to be encrypted, sure. right? So they're not going to be able to read it. So like nobody can really steal and and look at your data per se. And then just we just have all the layers of security to keep somebody from uh, breaking in. In some cases, that's a problem, right? Because like we take it pretty far. So for instance, I cannot impersonate you. Like if you're a customer, even though I'm the VP of engineering, I cannot get into your account unless you explicitly invite me. Like I just literally there's literally no way for someone else to look at your data unless unless you lost your token. You know, somebody stole your token from your own infrastructure. But you know, that's in the cloud, what we do, we run periodic, we actually like hire a company that does periodic sweeps of our APIs, and they go over with a fine-tooth comb to look for any
1: hmm.
0: kind of way that someone can crack in through our, our APIs and they don't typically find like serious issues. They've never found anything that would be like lead to a ransomware type attack, but we do put a lot of work into making sure those stay really clean. They tend to be more like, if a user's using a certain kind of browser and somebody has the following list of data, they can spoof a website that could trick the user into turning over their data, Yeah. right? And so then we mitigate those. We have two security teams actually, we have one security team that's all about like SOC 3 compliance and you know, just like making sure and you know, who engages with all the, uh, you know, the external vendors that that help us keep the system secure and all that kind of thing. Um, and they advise us on all of our practices. And then we have uh, this like just amazing developer internally who like uh, all he does is focus on security issues. So if anything comes up, if anyone reports it, goes straight to him. But he's also very proactive. Um, He's also on the CV emailing list. So he has like secret insider knowledge when there's like an exploit that's known in the Linux community. He can't tell us about it, but he can know about it and, you know, think about it.
1: You can patch your your cloud services so that you know customers before it gets unembargoed, right? Yeah, exactly.
0: Like, um, but again, he, he he can't really talk about that stuff. But you can kind of tell when he, uh, I worked with him on Ubuntu, and it was like really obvious and he'd be like, "I'm not doing any of my uh, deliverables this week." He'd be like, "Okay,
1: yeah. <laughs> something's up."
0: But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, you know, I'm not really a security expert myself, but uh, you know, we we have quite a few on the cloud product and. I would ask myself as a customer, like, do you trust Jamie and you know Peter and our security team, or do you trust yourself to keep your data secure, right? And it's probably a better bet to go with them. But recently, what we've been really worried about, are more than the ransomware attacks, are like the Solar Winds, these toolchain attacks. And we do build InfluxDB, open source, which people can download and put on their servers, etc. So that feels to me like more concerning. You know, that's like a more, that feels like a more juicy target for people. So we went through, we stopped a lot of development and we went through all of our GitHub repos. And Jamie, the developer I was telling you about, he exhaustively searched every commit, you know, cause you know, GitHub keeps everything forever. He searched everything for anything that looked like a secret. So we went through just a month of just scrubbing secrets and rolling secrets and then also putting into place practices to never put secrets in GitHub again, you know, it, like, like I've done it by accident, you know, so like now it's like soon as if somebody does leak a secret to GitHub, it hasn't happened since then, but somebody did, it would like alert us and then we'd know to like roll it right away and and et cetera. So we look at like. You know, those layers of security, like making sure our APIs are secure and making sure nobody's like hijacking our code. We look at that pretty seriously. Oh, we also went through and we added checksums like everywhere. So like we now like, well, I'll say we use it as a best practice that if we're using like a third party dependency, we will put like checking the checksum, make sure that's part of our tool chain to make sure nobody can slip anything in there.
1: Yeah, that way you can publish like a good bill of materials for everything. And I think you're in a in a unique place where, you know, obviously if I'm taking, you know, that binary from influx and putting it on my servers, it's it's a database. So it's going to have access to sensitive data or whatever data I write to that. But there's no way. Like any sane person would say, oh, I'm not going to trust any vendor here. I'm going to go build my own database. So like, as you know, following those, you know, you you mentioned SOC 3 and like the regulatory and compliance, like large, you know, customers using it that are depending on it. And it sounds like you have a, a really formal and mature and well thought out like security process.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it's like to the degree that like, I don't actually have to worry about it. That much. I do worry about it. You <laughs> <So laughs> know, every time, anytime anybody I see anything on, you know, Hacker News about whatever exploit, I'm like, oh man,
1: I... Yeah, which is like every day these days. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I worry more about oh, we also use sealed secrets. So, um, if somebody got hold of our GitHub repo for the cluster itself, there wouldn't be a catastrophe because there'd be no usable keys for them in there. And, you know, we keep everything involved. I, what I do worry more about is, you know, just our customers own applications and their own practices, you know, and like, I, I feel like we do have, like have an obligation of making it easier to default to having a secure application. Right. If like you get a token, a retoken from InfluxDB. DB and you publish it to GitHub by accident, it's not necessarily our fault, right? No one's going to hold us accountable that like somebody did that. But um, I'd still like to make it as easy as possible for that not to happen or for you to like easily like invalidate and roll that token and et cetera, if that makes sense. So, you know, we, we publish best practices for how to manage your tokens and like,
1: yeah, if you have lost sample code. So, you know, you talked a lot about the challenges. One one kind of last question for you here. You talked a lot about the challenges and like the work that's involved in running Kubernetes and Istio and everything, you know, that that you're running in a cloud native ecosystem today. I'm curious like from like a really high level, like kind of looking back at the way everything is, is it worth it? Like is the value you're getting for the effort you're putting into it? Like w- would you would you do the same thing again if you could make the decision today? That's
0: interesting. I was um Having that like as sort of a shower thought
1: this morning,
0: right? Like, so what I think is, if we went back in time and I was there, which I wasn't when we started out, if I knew then what I know now, we would absolutely like use Kubernetes again, but just we would make many fewer mistakes along the way. It would have been way
1: way more efficient. <laughs> More direct path. Yeah, yeah.
0: So I don't think like if I knew then what I knew now, we wouldn't have used it again. If we were starting the project now, I think we would still use it. That said, I think some of the parts we may not have put into Kubernetes, at least not to start. You know, because we do it's a it's a database, so it's stateful. You know, and like Kubernetes hates stateful services, right? And and then there may be some other things. That maybe we would, maybe we wouldn't have put into Kubernetes, like especially around like tenant isolation of queries, like ways to reduce noisy neighbor problems and that kind of thing. We might look for other solutions for that. But, um, you know, like I like to say, uh, the early bird gets the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. And I think right now is kind of the second cheese part, you know, like now we have a company have. Adopted Kubernetes at the scale. And now we know how to run it at the scale, and etc. We're probably getting like a good value out of it. And if we were starting it now, I think that the the industry, or the at least the ecosystem around Kubernetes, has matured to the point where it would probably be uh, easier to get started, even if you were running like as large of a project as we are.
1: Yeah, I mean you know, when you started on Kubernetes, you know, we, you, you use the, the the phrase, I think, and like, we hear it a lot. Like, you know, we made the bet on Kubernetes years and years ago. And like, here it is 2021. It's like, it's an obvious bet, but it, it certainly wasn't years ago. It was like, there was lots of, you know, like Kubernetes was really, really early. Um, there were other schedulers like, you know, that were out there competing yeah. that were, you know, honestly, probably in, in your world, you know, Mesosphere, you know, had some interesting work in the stateful set stuff that was probably pretty tempting for you.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I wasn't there for those discussions. But yeah, I mean, back then, Docker was still like a thing. Like, I don't know. I I would say this. Like, most of the demos that I see for Kubernetes and like, oh, look at this cool CNCF. We want to get this cool thing in CNCF. Like, the domains that they're talking about and the uh, demos that they do are like, in my opinion, like often relatively trivial. And sure, if you have like a trivial problem, a lot of solutions will work for you. I think when you get to really non-trivial problems, I'm not so sure Kubernetes is a no-brainer for everybody. You know, if you look at like just the maturity of running VMs on AWS, you know, like I, I wouldn't write those off Necessarily, depending on the problem space. But for us, like multi cloud, cloud native, scalability, I think we, we would still alight on Kubernetes as, as the best solution to our problem.
1: Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good point. You know, that common abstraction, that common API that you, you, you talked about earlier is super compelling. So hopefully, what we see is like Kubernetes. Becomes easier. The complexity is removed. It becomes easier and easier and easier to run, where you actually start to get that value without as much of the cost of maintaining that infrastructure, because you have quite an investment into maintaining that infrastructure to run Influx Cloud today.
0: Yeah, and I mentioned before, uh, there's companies like Replicated and Noble Nine, you know, and other companies that are not Kubernetes vendors, and they're not Kubernetes tooling vendors per se. You know, and a lot of these companies, I think, are offering compelling solutions to problems that you have with Kubernetes by like not making you add it to your operational workload, like your operational overhead. Yeah. You know, so like you don't have to go and build your own CD system. There's solutions. You don't have to build your own SLOs. You don't have to build your own on-prem you know, pipeline and solution for that. And you don't even have to host it. Yeah. you don't even have to operate it. So that to me is a really promising sign about getting into Kubernetes because like other projects that you can opt into that will, um, you know, maybe cost you money, but will save you a ton of time, you know, be really worth it in the end. So I I think that's a good sign of maturity.
1: Yeah, best of breed is is a good path. And, you know, yes, need for time series databases in Flux Cloud is is the best of breed there. So, right. That's what I think. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Rick, I I really enjoyed the conversation. I learned a ton about from, you know, your perspective from an end user, the challenges, the success, the the hurdles, like the day to day of actually like running and managing both an engineering team operating Kubernetes and the infrastructure uh, itself that's necessary to run it. I really appreciate your time.
0: Yeah, anytime. And of course, you know, my whole team, every single person on my team knows 10 times more than I do about it. So feel free to, you know, join our community Slack and ask them about it if you want to get like
1: real details. That's all we have time for today. If you're the maintainer of a CNCF project and would like to be a guest on this show, head over to kublist.com. To learn more about HeavyBit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks and content on sales, marketing, product, and more for founders of developer tools companies. And this podcast is brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem software to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at Replicated.com.